Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello, and welcome, everyone. My name is Renee Garrett, and I am your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started tonight, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Stephanie Michelle Spigert currently owns and manages a non-public agency named Golden State Speech Pathology Services, Inc. that is accredited by the California Department of Education. Stephanie is a board-approved CE provider. She receives a speaking fee for presentations, digital courses, and receives a speaking fee for this podcast episode from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Stephanie has no non-financial disclosures. My financial disclosures are that I'm a paid employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I'm also a paid employee as adjunct faculty of both James Madison University and Old Dominion University. I also receive reimbursement as podcast host from speechtherapypd.com. My non-financial disclosure is I'm the current secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Now, without further ado, we welcome our guest, Stephanie Michelle Swigert, who is the leading expert on mindfulness and compassion-based practices in special education. She is certified as a teacher of mindfulness meditation and as a speech-language pathologist. Stephanie Michelle is a presenter for the American Speech-Language Hearing Association's National Convention in 2023. She is the founder of a woman-owned non-public agency, Golden State Speech Pathology Services, Inc., since 2013. Stephanie Michelle is the author and creator of the popular course, Shiftmakers 1.0, and the framework to becoming a mindful speech clinician. She is also a speaker and YouTube host for SpeechTherapyPD.com. Her insights have been featured on numerous podcasts, including Keys for SLPs and Speech Science Podcast, where she shares her passion and thought leadership on professional holistic practices. She believes in the mission and is support a supporting member for the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Stephanie's unwavering dedication to empowering individuals to use clear and compassionate communication underscores her mission to make a profound impact in the world of special education. Welcome, Stephanie. It's so great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Renee, for having me and for that introduction. It was so thorough. I appreciate you. And I appreciate speechtherapypd.com for welcoming me back and having this opportunity to be with you on your podcast. Thank you so much. 
Oh, you're so welcome. Yeah, and I'm very interested in this topic because I think it's Mm -hmm. such an important thing when we're thinking about not only our relationships with our patients and clients, but our coworkers and our other colleagues. And so many of us face workplace challenges quite frequently, especially when you're working for a corporate entity. And so if we jump right in, what are some of those common workplace challenges that we as speech language pathologists face? And how can we use compassionate communication strategies to help us address these challenges? Right. So when we think about the times, I mean, we are in really difficult times right now in our world as a whole, in a collective space, in our work environments, in our homes. There there are a lot of challenges that are presenting themselves. Challenges are everywhere. Conflict is everywhere. We can't avoid it. And you're asking about different challenges that we face in the workplace. And I think a lot of different professionals on teams in special education or actually in any setting, wherever you practice, can really relate to the fact that I kind of think of if I were to like write out a list of my challenges, it would be just as long and ever flowing like my to-do list. It never goes away. And when we we solve one problem, a new one comes. I mean, it's just they're everywhere and it's normal and it's it's a part of life. But in the work that I do and the people that I connect with, there are a lot of common challenges that we hear. It doesn't take much to just pull up social media, you know, one of the platforms out there and see the pain points, the things that the professionals are struggling with. And it's not just us as professionals, but it's our clients, if you call them clients, if you call them patients, students, depending on which area you work in. It's everybody. It's the families as well. We're all having struggles. Some of the recent ones that have been coming up, especially this time of year, because for some people, we're approaching certain traditions or certain holidays, or maybe for the school systems, the we're coming up to a period where we're going to break soon. So there's a lot of chaos and a lot of things happening and a lot of blocks and on where things can just be easy. So challenges are showing up. And I'm seeing and hearing about more and more frustrations and and a lot of emotional distress. So if you think about people who have communication difficulties, especially when we're we're coming up into this time of year where we're super social and you have maybe people who have this emotional distress due to not being able to communicate, their frustrations might be might be running really high, whether it's adults, whether it's students, again, whether it's families. And I think compassionate communication, there's a place, there's a place for this. And speech pathologists, I talk about a lot, the way that we can support that, support that frustration or that emotional distress that people are experiencing is to really sort of activate empathetic listening, to really be there with the person in their experience, acknowledging those emotional challenges that are faced by our students, our patients, or our families. And really validating the feelings that they're having and expressing that, hey, we understand, I hear you, this is tough, or this is really hard. This is a really difficult time. I see that and I'm here for you. And what that does is that builds that sense of emotional support. So that's that's one challenge that's come up. I've seen quite a few. When we're looking at, there's right now we're doing a lot of progress reports. So we're looking at those goals. I'm a school-based SLP. So this is that time of year where we're checking in with progress and goals, and maybe there's limited progress, maybe there's some setbacks, maybe some regression. And again, we can probably speak to this in a lot of different areas outside of the school-based setting, but when our clients are facing 
that slow progress or having that regression, this can really lead to feelings of discouragement with them. And compassionate communication is a really great tool at this time because we can come in and begin to use this strength-based communication. We've been hearing a lot about strength-based communication and focusing on the positive aspects of therapy, acknowledging those smaller achievements, even if it's three, four, five percent. Sometimes therapists are worried about saying, well, they only made tiny little progress, but we can get really excited about that tiny little progress. And that tiny little progress can actually be great gains depending on on where our client is. And so I think when we think about our goals right now at this time of year too, sort of setting those realistic expectations and really thinking about ways that we can motivate and empower our patients. And we can do that through compassionate communication. We'll talk about later what that is and, and what that looks like. But another piece too, Renee, I think this is one of the strongest pieces and speechtherapypd.com did a great conference on this. It was their autism conference that they did over like not too long ago. And I really enjoyed being a part of that. It was a, it, it talked about interdisciplinary communication and how we practice with others. Collaboration is such a huge piece of what we do as being a part of a team. Absolutely. And I mean, so the people that you're on a team with probably look different than the people I'm on a team with. Who would be like your typical people that you would collaborate with over one of your clients? So in the outpatient setting, I'm on the same side of the hallway as the occupational therapist. We're in a different office than the physical therapist. So it would be really effortful for us to communicate, especially given our productivity standards being incredibly nuts at 100%. But the occupational therapists are right there. So we tend to have a little bit more ongoing conversations about patients. And interestingly enough, I work with a chiropractor now and she has given me quite a few referrals because she has had a few patients with different kinds of dystonias and things like that. And she sent me a couple of people with muscle tension dystonia. So in a couple of voice patients. So that's been interesting because that's different from when I worked in acute care, when it was mostly, you know, nurses, doctors, and whoever was on the therapy team. Exactly. And then when you compare that to a school team, now we have the school psychologist, we have the behaviorist. So we have so many different professionals that are involved in this collaboration piece, and it can be really complex. All the different pieces and parts can be really complex. And obviously, this can lead to communication barriers. There's a lot of barriers that can show up in collaboration. In fact, through the years, that has been my growth edge is really being able to show up and learn how to be in collaboration with different personalities and different people and different viewpoints. And when we think about compassionate communication, I think about Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. He is the founder for the Center for Nonviolent Communication. And he really stresses this idea about clear, open communication and clear in the sense of not being vague, because when we're vague, we're leaving room for interpretation. And if we're interpreting things differently, this can obviously open the door to more conflict. But when we're talking about effective communication collaboration, it's this clear, open communication. It's this active listening. This was a really big learning piece for me, too, because through the years, I remember, and it still happens with my brain, but I mean, and maybe you can attest to this, but how often sometimes we're hearing somebody share and it sets off a, oh, I already know what I'm going to say to that, or I'm already going into defense, or I'm so caught up in where I want to jump in or what I have to say that I'm not even really fully actively listening anymore to what's being shared. Can you relate to that? 
That is a really good point because it is, and I tell my students that too, it's a learned skill. We aren't inherently built to do that. You really have to be mindful and focused on doing that. And I think too, when you do that with your patients, you develop this rapport and this trust that if you're not doing that, you don't always get. And that's probably one of the number one things I hear patients say when they come from another clinic or from a different experience, they'll say something like, thank you so much for listening. I really just needed someone to hear me today. And I'm sorry if I derailed the session. And I'm like, no, (laughs) I mean, this was perfect because this would have been a barrier for you, like you mentioned, to make progress, to be interactive. And then also it sort of speaks into shared decision-making, which I've spent a lot of time on recently, but also feel like that's something that I always did just based on my background as being a family member before long before I was a therapist. So it was just a different mindset and a different viewpoint based on my life experience. I think those real life examples, and you know, I like a good case study, but (laughs) the real life examples are the things that people that are in a learning space relate to a lot more because they, they can implement things a little easier. And I like that you're you're talking about how it was family first. These are strategies that you can use in your personal life and your professional life. And you're right. It's it's not something that just can come, maybe for some, maybe for some, it can come naturally. Maybe for others, it's a little bit more difficult. But I, I always say it's like emptying out your faculties in the sense that you have to fully let go of all of your preconceived notions, all of your judgments, biases, all those conditioned habits that you have, you have to really set that down. And it's it's a discipline, right? It's a discipline. It's a practice. So that's great that that's something that you're continuing to share with your students as well, because that what that does is now that creates this respectful place. Like you said, it creates this environment where there's more trust and we're creating that foundation for deeper relationships. And same with our families when, when the families are coming in, right? Cause that's, that's a challenge. We, ha- I mean, as a school-based SLP, one of the biggest things I worried about when I came out of my CF, not to scare any of our listeners if they're CFs, but were contentious families, were litigious situations, oh, that could get my heart going. I'd be so nervous. And I'd think, what do I have to practice? What do I have to know? And you can get really nervous about that. But if you can bring compassionate communication to the table in those difficult times where it's okay, I see what's happening here, but you create this open dialogue now, this is so very important. So now when families are sharing, it's like, okay, I'm going to practice this empathy I'm going to hear what's going on for them. What are their feelings? What are they needing? What are their perspectives? And I want them to know that I heard it so I can reframe it back to them. Okay, I hear this is how you're feeling. This is what you're needing. This is what you're seeing. That really creates a supportive environment. That's why I think compassionate communication strategies really can make a difference in the outcome of those types of meetings, those contentious or litigious or high energy type of environments. And then I think something that has also come up a lot is, and I'm loving this, I want to I want to talk about Garrett Oyama's work too, but but just when you think about cultural and linguistic diversity now, mm-hmm. you've got people from all different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. And that can create communication barriers. And I was talking with Garrett Oyama. He did a a video mini series on speechtherapypd.com called Conversations in 
cultural considerations. I think it was a CCC video miniseries, and he talks about the piece that really sticks out. And it's so true is that all of these unintended consequences that come from implicit biases and just Mm -hmm. this idea that it's like, well, that's not what I meant. I didn't, you don't mean for something to land a certain way, but that's how it landed. And we have to recognize that. And he talks about really looking at how we can make this mental shift and and changing our thought process. So I found his work to be very interesting for any listeners that want to check out SLP Garrett Oyama. I really appreciate his work on that. And I think it's so important that we're always seeking to understand and respect cultural differences. And we're also adapting our communication styles accordingly. And we're involving translators or interpreters when necessary too. I think these are really important strategies. Yeah, it's interesting because I just was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about our interpreter service that we we use at work and it's a computer-based system and it's great when it's great and it's not so great when it's not. So when you have someone with a dialectal difference that they don't have a translator for, you know, you kind of get in this space of, okay, are we okay to then utilize the family because the policy says no. But then what do you do when you're asking, can we do move forward with an instrumental exam for swallowing, like a modified barium swallow and trying to explain that. And so, yeah, that's another place where I think you have to be more compassionate and like you said, step back from your biases because we get this, again, I think this is one of those things that comes with seasoning when you're more seasoned in the field is that, yeah, we want to push for the instrumental, but sometimes we have to take that step back and look at what does that family want? What is the outcome that they want to achieve? And is what we're doing supportive of that? Are we being a barrier? Because maybe it's something from a quality of life standpoint, they're not interested in. And so as long as we do this, yeah, with education and then also that active listening and being able to answer those questions. I'm so glad you pointed that out. And absolutely, because it's bringing that gentle curiosity, not interrogation, but bringing that gentle curiosity to wanting to learn more, to see where people stand, to see what they value, what matters to them, what's important to them and trying to meet their needs as well. And I've I've learned a lot of great lessons along the way, as you say, as I've become more and more seasoned. I don't know how much seasoning I have. But, I mean, I've been, I don't know how we measure this, but I've been in the field to date maybe 17 years now. And that absolutely has been so pivotal for me when I'm looking at, when I'm getting to the summary of my reports, did I check in with the families to see what are they interested in? What's important to them? How do they see my evaluation? Is this something, an area of concern or not? So really bringing them in as a key team member and considering their perspectives. And again, that's that curiosity. That's that open dialogue. That's that, like you said, shared shared decision-making, like everybody's needs matter. It's not just me sitting here saying, here's how we're going to move forward. I appreciate that you said that. I think that's there. That's a really important piece, especially in the, the collaborative realm of things. I'll point out one more challenge because probably I could go on and on with, that's why I'm glad you jumped in on the pause. I could probably just, we could spend a whole hour just on the challenges that are out there for us because we're doing tremendously important work, but it's also challenging and difficult. And because it's so challenging and difficult, and you know, this is Renee, something I like to talk about, but 
burnout's at an all-time high. There is just article after article about what's going on in the, the healthcare world, in the school systems. You've got the mass exodus of people that are leaving because of intense workloads, caseloads, boundaries that are maybe blurred and people have had enough. They're at their, they're all time high. They're, they're stressed out. I know. I know all the listeners out there, go ahead and put one of the hands up in the chat box. <laughs> you can relate, especially this time of year. And then, like I said, on top of everything else that's going on in the world. So there's a lot of, a lot of burnout. And when I'm talking about self-care, I'm not talking about take a bubble bath or go on a hike or drink a glass of wine. All of those are great things. They're strategies and they've worked for me at some point and at some point they haven't and they're wonderful. But when I talk about compassionate communication, when we're looking at burnout and self-care, self-care in this regard is I want to care for myself. I want to promote this culture of self-care and well-being. And I want to do that by being able to know how to openly discuss all of my workload concerns with my supervisor or my director or my peers. I want to be able to advocate for myself on a manageable caseload or on if I need more assistance with the work that I'm doing. This to me is self-care, knowing how to create my boundaries, stand in my boundaries, how to communicate them, advocate for myself, do so in a respectful way and not avoid conflict, but show up in a way so more of our needs can be met. When more of our needs are met, because we've learned how to ask for that, which we are really truly needing, that is when we are going to have more well-being. And I know some therapists are thinking, oh, we ask, we put it out there and we ask and we don't, sometimes we don't hear back or we get the door shut or we get a no, or they just don't understand. And I hear that. And that's very real. That's what's happening for a lot of people. And I want to support with strategies to really take a look at how we are communicating our message, how we are advocating the words that we are using when we are showing up to make these requests. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the Certificate Tracker? The free CE Tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's me in a nutshell, because um, I think I probably have touched on this before, but I have, I have a boss that is completely not um, approachable. And, and definitely if I say anything, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble a lot. So I think I'm very clear and concise from a communication standpoint, especially when it comes to written communication and that it's funny because I told my students this past semester, the story of when I was relatively, I think I was done with my CF. So I was still a relatively new clinician, but we had moved to this format that we were supposed to be using in healthcare called SBAR. So it's situation, background, assessment, and recommendation. So when you write there's actually in healthcare now, there's a chart like a, it's like a red flag warning or like a, when the nurses get a lab value back that's critical, they write it up that way. 
but we had been instructed to use this as a template for emails when we're communicating with especially supervisors so that we can be concise and get to the point and not be a creative writer. And so the first time I ever did that, I found myself in my bosses, not the same boss I have now, different boss, but I found myself in her office because she was very upset with my directness. And when I said, but here's how I wrote this. This was the situation. This was the background. This was what I assessed it to be and what the recommendation was. And she was like, oh, (laughs) I'm just doing what you told me to do, man. (laughs) What do you want me? But again, I think like you mentioned, high stress environments, being effective in our communication skills is really crucial. And so how do you balance that understanding with the empathy and then dealing with all these other nuanced things that come about, whether it's families, patients, caregivers, because caregivers are sometimes not family clients of all, you know, across the lifespan and then also our coworkers, because it is difficult. And like you mentioned earlier, dealing with different personalities can be a challenge. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's a delicate dance. I mean, even in just the story that you shared, and you were asked to provide the information a certain way, you did what you were told, and then it but that's not how it landed, right? So it landed differently. And it it sounds maybe that it wasn't you got feedback that it wasn't maybe well received in the way that you sent it. Right. So Mm -hmm. it is, it's a delicate dance. There's a lot of variables that we're like, okay, we have to sort of strike this balance between, like you said, being clear and being concise in our communication and empathetic in our understanding, right? We have to, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. So again, he, he was the one who founded this. It's called the acronym is NVC. It's nonviolent communication. And we're using compassionate communication also as sort of an interchangeable term, but he provides a lot of valuable insights on this. He's got a a great book called, I have it sitting out. It's nonviolent communication, a language of life. And anybody who has read this book, I don't want to be blurred. There we go. Anybody who has read this book that I've talked to agrees. This book is a game changer. This book kind of gets you going. His insights are really wonderful. When we're talking about sort of achieving this balance, he talks about that clarity and communication. He talks about using that really simple language because that simple language promotes more understanding. So when we want to move away from that jargon or that overly complex terminology, when we're offering details about diagnoses or treatment plans or our expectations. And in being real clear, this actually promotes trust, right? People don't think you're trying to slide something in there or get away with something. It's very clear. You've got the foundation of trust. So now we're thinking about empathy and understanding. We kind of go back to that active listening I was talking about, you know, giving our full attention, we're giving our full attention to the patient or to the family member, but what this this delicate balance is, we're not just hearing the words now. And I always kind of use an onion as a way to describe this as an analogy, but it's sort of un, unpeeling all the layers of the onion. So it's like getting beneath the words that are being said to really understanding emotions and concerns that lie beneath that, right? Mm-hmm. Because behind every judgment, blame, criticism, Marshall says, is a tragic Express is someone's tragic expression of an unmet need. So when we're hearing people, we have to kind of unlayer it and try to acknowledge and 
validate whatever's going on for them, whatever their emotions are, the clients or the families. And again, this is creating and building a connection that's that's based on empathy. And then you have his nonviolent communication principles. And these are what I love. This is what I spend a lot of time teaching on. This is a pathway. And it's really kind of separating when we look at situations that we're looking at them from an observational standpoint and we're not, so we're sort of weeding out our evaluation or our opinions and kind of sticking to the facts. So we're describing maybe behaviors or situations without attaching our judgment to it when we're in conversation with another person, right? Because this is now when I'm objective and I'm pointing something out to you, I'm now removing the possibility that you might feel threatened or go on the defense, right? Which is now going to keep your ears open a little bit more to hearing what I have to share. And then we, so when we move from our observations, Marshall says we go into our feelings and our needs. So this is learning how to, and I know this is cringy for some people to think about, but we have to start to be a little bit more open about sharing our personal needs and our feelings and what's going on for us. And also creating that space for our clients and for our families to be able to do the same. And we connect to universal feelings and universal needs. As Marshall put it, he's got great charts on this. It's If you go to my website at goldenstateofmindpd.com on a blog post, I have these charts that come from his book. I love these because he says when we can stick to universal feelings and needs, it helps us relate to one another more, right? Because we've got this mutual sharing or now it's like, oh, I understand you. I felt that way before, or I had those needs. And this deepens our connection together, right? And being in this space. And then we're using I statements, right? So if I'm delivering information, I'm going to frame my my statements in a way that it's my personal experience. It's my personal perspective because I'm saying I, I'm not saying you, 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 right? I'm saying I, I feel this way. I need this. I missed out on this. And this, when we use I language, when we go into our meetings or we're sitting down with our clients, again, this is helping them to no longer feel blamed or criticized, right? So some of these strategies, or even like our This is a big one that comes up. I try really hard to use the compassionate communication strategies in my own home, right? And with my partner, my daughter's dad, and sometimes he he knows I use the compassionate communication, (laughs) but but my tone or my body language is not compassionate at all, right? I'm trying so hard, but he's like, Stephanie, like, this is speaking so much more right now. And it's true. Like, we have to be very aware of making sure that we balance this sense of calm and reassurance when we are delivering our information, because we can have all the right words to say, and we can learn these strategies and use I statements and connect our own feelings and needs in a non-judgmental way. But man, if our tone of voice isn't on point, that person might still not be listening and we're going to lose that connection. And wherever we wanted to go in that conversation that opportunity was just was just lost. So kind of remembering that mindful tone and and body language is going to be another key aspect. And I think what you said, right? Like you said with the family going to your families and with the the swallow study kind of asking them 
getting feedback from them and you were encouraging them if they had any questions to be able to talk to you and inviting that experience. I think this is really important because this is also going to help. If there's any misunderstandings, this is where we're going to iron it out and things are going to become more clear. It's like, okay, I'm hearing you say this. Did I hear that right? Or I'm hearing this is important to you. Did I get that right? And kind of cross-checking our information and really just staying committed to being open to letting them share in that safe space with you. I think all of those pieces are so important in really striking that that balance. They're all kind of equally important when we're communicating. Well, yeah, because especially in the hospital, you know, you're in this time crunch of everybody wants everything done now. And especially when it comes to testing and the doctor wants a diet recommendation yesterday and they want you to have this whole thing figured out. And sometimes it's not as simple as it sounds because we have other extenuating factors that we do not have control over. And then also thinking about email communication and text communication, which, you know, we don't typically, I don't text my patients and I don't email my patients, but definitely when it comes to professional colleagues, again, spouse, family, you can miss interpret the tone because that nonverbal communication is taken away. We don't have that face-to-face interaction. And so we hear that a lot too with the the email tone that you sent was not appropriate or getting picked apart when all you really were trying to do was be factual and brief and get out the things that you were trying to say in a, in a way that is concise. It's so true. That's, I read my emails and at least try to say, like, once I get the bulk of the email, I'll go back and try to at least throw a sentence and being like, hi, how are you? Or happy holidays if it's coming and they celebrate holidays or I'll try to throw something, you know, warm in there too. But I do Mm -hmm. go back and double check emails like you're saying, because sometimes we're in a hurry and we are just putting in the information, but you're right. When it's being read, it could come across differently than the way that you had intended to share it. So it's, it is sometimes important to go back and revisit and, and make sure that it's approachable that it's open, that there's not going to, that it's clear, there's not going to be any misunderstandings with it. Yeah, we just have to, we just have to be mindful and and double check that when we can and if we can. Yeah, and I'm, I'm reading through the questions that we talked about, specific communication techniques or exercises, and I think we were sort of touching on that already with enhancing active listening, fostering better understandings and connections. And so I think one of the big things for people is that the compassionate communication techniques, I'm not sure that everyone, and you you touched on this at the beginning, but I'm not sure everyone kind of gets or knows other than the act of listening, again, that we talked about just some other, are there other compassionate communication techniques that maybe you haven't talked about yet with like more of a real life example too? I could definitely give you a real life example of something that has come up for me. So I recently was, I did my last assignment that I did, I covered for a maternity leave assignment at a school district. And so I was there for 10 weeks and, you know, you, you only can build so much of a relationship with, you know, your students and their families in short time when you're sort of that sub person, the substitute person that's coming in and you do your best Well, I came in at a time where there was a student in which we were having multiple IEP meetings for because the parent was not in agreement with 
the school district. And how often does this happen where we have part one, part two, part three, part four, and these meetings go on and on? And I can tell you that in the first two meetings, I observed that mom mom said, I don't trust the school district. I don't agree. I don't believe what you're saying. I don't see this at home. There was a complete disconnect, if you will, from the team and mom. And in my opinion, it became this environment that felt like us against you, right? Like very separated, very disconnected, high energy team members leaving the meeting, you know, you would hear some criticism or blame. You heard people sharing their feelings. They were frustrated. They were upset. They were hopeless. Like, what isn't she seeing? What isn't she understanding? Like, so the district wanted to put the student into general education with a 504 plan, some supports, whereas mom wanted more of a restrictive environment. And so this is where sort of the conflict was. And so everyone's leaving these meetings exhausted, upset, just discouraged. But it's funny because everybody has the same goal in mind to support the student and to get what's best for the student. Well, along comes part three of the IEP meeting where they invited the director down. And Renee, it was night and day. I was blown away by the school director. She came in immediately connected with the parent. She sat there and she recapped, okay, these are the notes I have. This is what I'm understanding. This is what you stated in the previous meetings. Right away, she was super clear in repeating back and reframing back to parent exactly all of parents' concerns and feelings, which validated the parent. It validated what was going on for her. It immediately created this trust relationship between the director and the mom, because the director was, I see you, I hear you, I understand this. That does sound, she was calm, she was very well composed, very natural. I say tender, she was very tender in her approach. And she stayed objective though. She said, listen, this is the facts, this is the law, and school districts were required to do certain things. We have certain guidelines that we're held to. So this is where I'm coming from. So she stayed completely objective. And even though the district and the parent had the same vision for the education of this student, and even though they were still in disagreement when part three ended, mom still didn't see eye to eye, it became a we situation. I'm telling you, with that director there and the type of compassion, I, I was like, she must know compassion communication strategies. I'm going to check in with her later because I saw the empathy, the active listening, like the reframing, what I heard you say to make sure we're clear, the curiosity, the questions, the, the safe space. And mom became vulnerable and started crying. And it was almost like mom was softening. We were all softening. I walked out of that IEP meeting and I felt good. I felt at peace. We were not in agreement. Mom most likely was still going to file and was still going to go to due process over this. But the point is, is even though we didn't see eye to eye, when we left that meeting, we were all connected. We were laughing and sharing silly stories about the student with mom and mom was sharing silly stories with us. And we were all in this good space, a space where if I saw mom Maybe at a grocery store, like weeks later, outside of the school setting, I wouldn't feel embarrassed or nervous or be like, oh, you know, like hiding behind a cereal box because we left in a good space. We were respectful to each other. And there was just this dance of, I understand you and I hear you. And we see that we don't see eye to eye, but that's okay too. And we can be in this space peacefully and harmoniously. And we're going to be better because of it. 
So that was one example where, can I share this little poem from David White that it's only just a couple sentences? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of wraps into this story. And I think it's so beautiful. It's a good close to that little personal story that that I'm sharing, but it's called Enough by David White. And it goes like this. It's enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. And it makes me think of these IEP meetings where we are so closed. We're so stuck on our agenda. We are so directed that things have to be a certain way, or maybe at times I might put what I think should be or what matters to me at the top, what everybody else is feeling or needing. And it's like when we just stop and we open up to what's really here and we get really present with what's going on, amazing things can happen. So I love that poem by David White. And I love this as a reminder that when we go into these meetings, conflict doesn't have to be a negative thing. We don't have to fear it. We don't Mm -hmm. have to avoid it. We can find the strategies and the skills to show up in it and to be okay in it. Yeah. And I think it's really applicable. Like you brought up the school system story. So for me, there's been many times when I've been in a space where we're looking at potentially having a patient that needs to be comfort measures only. And again, when I was much younger in my career, I would be, I will say when I worked in inpatient rehab, I was not intimidated by the physicians because they always treated us as if we were part of the team. Acute care, the hierarchy is a little different where the physicians and then are sort of like treated like they're the kings and queens of the hospital. And it's not a criticism. It just is the environment that you're in. And they some come in and they're newer to the field and maybe don't have those skills and maybe haven't been at the bedside long enough. But there were some that I could go and say, hey, this is where we're at. You know, this is an end-stage Parkinson's patient, or this is a patient with ALS who doesn't want a feeding tube because they don't want to prolong their life. And there's a lot of different scenarios that we could go through with patients who have had strokes and things like that. But the bottom line is, having those conversations with the patients and their families and caregivers with a physician or another supportive person. Like we had our care team with our palliative care. And there's been many a times when I went in the room and and sort of act as the bridge for the family with those folks or vice versa, where I would say to the palliative care team, hey, I really need you to come in. And even though this isn't an end of life thing right now, the family needed that liaison of between the therapist and the medical team, what are we seeing and how their training is so crucial to having that effective communication and then having that environment where the people felt heard and felt, like you said, felt seen. And again, we used to advocate a lot harder for things like thicken liquids at the bedside and feeding tubes and all that. And now that's it's changed a lot based on research, which is great. I changed how I practiced over the course of the years based on that and based on my experience with these families, because you do get to the point where sometimes you're the only person who is actively listening. And then you have to kind of get everybody else on the same page as far as the medical team goes. So I think the whole point of me saying all that is that 
this is translatable across practice settings and across the lifespan of whatever age group you're treating. This isn't just isolated to a school system or to an acute care setting or to an inpatient rehab setting. It's very universal. And and that's one of the reasons why I thought this was so important to talk about because it's applicable in a lot of ways. And again, like you mentioned, even in family settings, we just recently lost my mother-in-law. And so that was one of the things that we had to do was really have some tough, crucial conversations as a family about what we were going to do and and what she wanted and and what the medical team was recommending. So it put a lot on me, I'll be honest, (laughs) because I knew the medical side of things and I saw how this was about to go down and not everybody was on the same page. So Again, I think it's just really important to acknowledge that we can use these tools and techniques in a variety of ways and a variety of spaces. I want to pin that for a second. First of all, Sam, very sorry for your loss. And I, I know you're the go-to person in your family and you're you're and I remember we talked about this before with other things with your family. You you're such a wealth of information and people come to you, but you're also going through your own experiences too. So that's gotta be a hard balance for you as well, just to be able to hold all that be able to hold space for everybody's questions, everybody's (laughs) understanding, but also your own grief and your own emotions in the process of what you're going through. Yeah, we're approaching one month. Yeah, it's been a a journey, especially too, because many people, if they've listened to either the webinar or the podcast, know that she had a variety of medical comorbidities, but also Alzheimer's. And so it wasn't necessarily the Alzheimer's, it was everything else that she had as a medical comorbidity that escalated really quickly. And so again, I think it was a lot and a lot of compassion and, and a lot of empathy and active listening. And that kind of ties into I know we said we're going to hold the questions, but someone asked about active listening and other three principles was empathy. And I'll let you say all the smart things. (laughs) Yes. So there's a laundry list. Are you mean when we were talking about the delicate dance of Mm -hmm. being clear, like having clarity for sure in our communication, showing up with empathy and understanding looking at Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication principles. So learning to stay objective, learning to keep the I statements about your own universal feelings, your own universal needs, what the requests might be and to enrich life for you or for others so that you can meet, you can meet those needs. Right. Um, And your body language and your tone that you're using to express yourself and staying open to asking questions, seeking curiosity and, getting feedback from other people as well. And you don't have to agree with the feedback that you're getting. You can simply, so a lot of times when there's feedback that comes in, we we get reactive, we're human, we're normal, right? This is, I want to normalize that, you know, our fight, flight, freeze can kick in when we're triggered. And one of my favorite quotes is about how there's this uh, space between stimulus and response. And in that space lies our our power to choose and in that choice is our freedom so if we're being triggered it's sometimes normal for us to be reactive as we would say but if we can learn to hear things that are coming at us and stay calm and stay composed or not take it personally but remember that onion that I told you, if we can drop beneath the words that we're hearing others share and we can truly connect to What's going on for them in this moment? What are they really feeling? What do you do I think they're really needing right now that might be coming out as criticism, judgment, blame? I'm in no way 
saying that it's okay for anybody to say those types of things to you. But I'm saying that we have a choice in how we want to show up and we can, we can receive that as let's hurt back. You know, you say something I'm upset about. I'm going to say something right back to hurt you. We see that a lot on social media. It, it saddens me. We could internalize that. If someone says something negative or hurtful to us or judges us or blames or criticizes us, we could internalize that. We could hurt ourselves. Like, oh, wow, I, I am really this or I am really that or oh, I'm so, why did I do, you know, we can internalize that. But if we can move away from those spaces and we we create this pause where Something is said in an IEP meeting. Something is said in your space with one of your doctors or, you know, in your collaboration where we're hearing something that we we start to feel that trigger. We can notice it in our body. Things start to happen. We get tense or we feel a tightness or a handshake or we start to feel our emotions. That's wisdom. Pay attention to that. But create that pause. Create that space to try to connect to the person to see what's beneath. What are they feeling and what are they And that compassion piece is so there's evidence. I know evidence-based research is the gold standard in our industry. You said you love a good case study. We were talking about evidence-based research. There is a lot of evidence-based research out there to support mindful compassion. If you um, go to PubMed, there's a lot of different sites. You can type in um, compassion, compassion-based practices, mindfulness. It's growing and accumulating, but there was um, there was an article, and I thought I I I want to just quickly touch on this because I know there's some people some people on my team love their they're like I want to hear more of this research stuff, but there was one article called Benefits of Mindful Compassion for for Staff, Patients, and Carers, and that just tells you right there it like you said it's for everybody right across disciplines across the settings that you're in and this study was really trying to look at the long-term effect of emotional well-being and behavior change of the patients the 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 caregivers and the staff after they took a course on mindful compassion and what they found was in this training was that mindful compassion had so many benefits by using the, these compassion strategies it can support you short-term and long-term because they came back two to three years after this training and they did a questionnaire. I think the study was 2016 and 17, and they came back in 2019 and did a questionnaire with the same group of 100 participants. And they found that people had a reduction in anxiety. They were sleeping better. They had better pain management. They felt more empowered. That's a big one I love speaking on, feeling empowered, feeling calm. They were feeling more relaxed. It helped people cope with stressful situations. And it also allowed the participants this time and space for themselves, which helped them become more clear and more focused, which is so important, right? Because when we're blocked, that's when sometimes we're spewing out things we shouldn't or doing things we shouldn't or forgetting things that we need. So there's a lot of evidence-based research that is out there to support mindfulness, mindful compassion, compassionate communication and strategies. So I welcome those who are interested in that, who are listening to really tap into those and see the benefits for yourself. Yeah, I think that's great too, because again, we are all about the evidence-based practice. And I think when you see the research for it, and, and we will add that to the show notes. There's a couple of resources Stephanie sent me today, and I'll, I'll send those over so that they're in the show notes as well. But again, getting back to that role that self-awareness plays in the development of the compassionate communication skills, you know, SLPs 
definitely can cultivate the self-awareness to improve their interactions in the workplace. And it's kind of interesting to me because I'm in the um, ASHA leadership development program for healthcare right now. And these are very much some of the things that we talk about in managing conflict and being able to stand in that space. Like you mentioned, have that pause so that you have time to not be reactive, but to be thinking of a more thoughtful response. And that way your needs are getting met and you're being heard without it being a fight back and forth. And, you know, I think we we set that up and it sounds great, but then there's times when it doesn't work because you we sometimes have to think about the receiver, like you said before. And I think that's the part where when we're self-aware and we're able to put these things into practice, how it lands is still not always perfect or ideal with the other person because maybe they need to do some of this work too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mar- Marshall Rosenberg talked and he's presently deceased. So I'm sorry if I've talked about him. He, he, he talked about how, you know, we can learn these strategies because it's like another language and we can practice it and we can bring this communication, uh, compassion communication to the table, but that doesn't mean that other people know it, understand it or use it. And some people might be turned off by it, especially when you're first learning it, because there's a very specific system to it. So it can kind of sound rote or it can sound unauthentic in a way as you're sort of learning the process, but you're right. You you can do all, all of the steps and have things laid out beautifully and you will hit roadblocks at times where it doesn't land. And in those times, I would say the best strategy for that is to just have self-empathy. Just come back to yourself and check in and, you know, nurture yourself in those experiences and don't be hard on yourself and, you know, know that you, or see it as a learning experience. Like what, what could I try differently? You know, journaling sometimes is really good for self-awareness. And I've done this where if I was in certain situations in the school districts after the fact, uh, I would write down a situation that happened and what was coming up for me and how I responded. And then I'd look back on it and say, it's really interesting when you journal things out that way, how you can go back and look at things and more objectivity comes out of it. You're like, oh, well, I didn't think about that this person could be. It gives you time to work through it. And then you can kind of journal out what I could have said, what I could have done. Did I give empathy? How might they be feeling? What might they have been needing in that circumstance? And if we do that enough, even though it's after the fact, what happens is we're really training and teaching ourselves and setting ourselves up to be more proactive in the future rather than reactive. Because guess what, guys? These types of conversations and conflicts, they're just going to keep coming. Like You can avoid this one, but there's going to be another one. So if we get in that habit of bringing that self-awareness of what's going on for me, what am I feeling? What am I needing? But then also thinking about others, and when it doesn't land well, coming back to ourselves and and having that self-compassion and that, you know, that empathy for, for self in, in those moments, if, if you can, if you're capable. Yeah, and I think that's good, too, because I just actually used this whole journaling. Um, well, I've used it before with patients, but one particular that stands out was um, a young female who was diagnosed with functional neurologic disorder and she was having a lot of times where she was triggered and having vocal tics and physical tics and was not diagnosed with Tourette's was not diagnosed with autism, but we did a sensory profile on her and she was low sensitivity and highly 
I can't think of the word right now because words are failing, but not highly reactive, but she was, she needed more stimulation as far as sensory goes. So she liked spicy foods and she liked certain smells and things like that. And so we started using that as part of her therapeutic process so that she could identify the triggers of what was happening to her. And so it's interesting for those of you who have iPhones because the new update has a, and I don't know if you'll be able to see this. I don't think you can. It's too late. Yeah, too late. Welcome. It's journaling. There's a journaling app now that's embedded on your iPhone and, and you can actually schedule a time for writing, make it a habit, lock it oh, up, wow. write about it, add photos, add places. And, and so I think that's kind of cool because it's free and for those who are more technology driven and want to be able to type it in or text it in to a, an electronic device, I think that's a really cool feature. And I'm not getting reimbursed by Apple or anything like that. I just thought it was kind of cool and interesting <laughs> to put on there. Yes, I know. I do that same thing with GoodNotes, the app. And I'm like, I do not like I'm not an endorser. Is it? I don't even know the word for it, but I but I just love it so much. So I promote it too. But it's that same idea where you can write, you can add pictures. And I love and it's an app. And I love that idea because and like you said, you could voice memo it, you can type it, you can handwrite it. But just taking that that pause or that moment to practice journaling, even if it's just for a couple minutes. You know, because regular self-reflection and journaling can really help to explore your various reactions that you may have had in different in different circumstances. And then after the fact, you go back and you look, you may see things that you haven't you haven't seen before. And plus, because we know emotions come and go, if maybe you were journaling when you were in an emotional moment, it'll be interesting to go back and look at it when emotions have changed because they change like the weather to go back and look at it when you're in a different emotion and see what you see at that point in time. It's just a tool for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I use a journal for my garden. I know it sounds lame, but (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Sometimes I just put like weather conditions because I'm in coastal Virginia and you never know how it's going to be and like what seeds sprouted when and when did I put plants in the grow light and how did they do? And that's amazing. But if I don't do that, like I can look back and see like what date did I plant this last year? What do I need to do differently? Because the weather's different or whatever it is. And so, um, I think people get stuck. My my sweet neighbor is, um, she calls it all the woo-woo stuff, numerology and, and some crystals and stuff. And, and she doesn't share that freely with a lot of people. But um, she always says that journaling, um, people think that that's a woo-woo task. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so she says she feels like people um think that she's a little a little odd is how she always terms it. But she um she spent a lot of time doing that recently because she had was going through a cancer journey. And so she used that as part of her recovery. Mm-hmm. So again, when we're thinking about things like that, we kind of you know, it sounds like woo, you know, that's a little off or whatever, but it's actually really helpful for a lot of different reasons. Yes, absolutely. So we do have, what is Robert's last name who talks about clear, effective communication? The only Robert that came to mind for me was Robert Fulgham. Everything I learned, everything I ever need to know, I learned in kindergarten. Uh-huh. I that I gave that for graduation, <laughs> but I graduated from high school. Yes. Are you I talking? The chats? Yeah, I'm just wondering if she's talking about um, Marshall. Oh, are you talking about Marshall Rosenberg? So... Do I, I can, I can type in the the chats too, but yeah, I'm talking about if you are, yes. Okay. Marshall, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. Yes. 
and he is presently deceased, but he started the Center for Nonviolent Communication. I do want to shout out their website. If you'd like to learn more, it's cnvc.org. And I'm going to put that right here, cnvc.org in the chat for Center for Nonviolent Communication, because there's actually, you might find that there's there's local organizations and support, support groups and different uh, teams where you can get together and meet with people in your local area that are practicing this nonviolent communication or compassionate communication. So it's worth kind of going to cnbc.org and seeing if what local organizations are near you that support this. But NVC is used in over 35, I think, countries across the globe. It's used in, you know, big businesses. It's used in schools, the healthcare industry. It's it's used with kids. It's, it's everywhere. It's been around for a really long time. And for the, the simple reason that the strategies work, they work to help develop peace. And, and Marshall Rosenberg, he said compassionate communication was he termed it as a way to communicate from the heart space and help us connect back more to our authentic selves. And I look at commu- uh, compassionate communication as life-serving communication. And there's so much that we do that's life-serving. So if we can wrap all of our communication into that too, then that would just be amazing uh, connections and deeper relationships and more productivity and more uh, effective outcomes for us in the field. Stephanie, thank you so much. I have 904, so we can wrap it up. But thank you, Stephanie, Michelle Swigert, so much for joining us tonight. Um, it's always lovely to chat with you and catch up. And I just appreciate you so much and the work that you're doing and the, the time and space that you share. And so any last remarks or? Just so much gratitude for everybody and for the people who showed up today, the participants, and for those who are listening, whether it's live or in the library, there is a reason you were called to this particular podcast episode. There's a reason that you're here. So listen to that wisdom. And hopefully there's some golden nuggets that you can take from this episode into the work that you do that will just really ripple effect and touch so many lives. So thank you everybody who came and thank you Renee for your podcast and for your contributions to the field of speech pathology. I'm so excited for you and all that you are creating and co-creating with others. And it's really, really inspiring. And thank you so much for having me and thank you to speechtherapypd.com. And thank you, Stephanie. It's so great to see you. And thank you um, for everybody that participated. We look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.